Welcome, one and all, to a Unicron-tastic episode of The George Sanders Show. It's Orson Welles Week here, tying in with a double feature coming to the local Grand Illusion Theater in Seattle. Uh, they will be playing Citizen Kane and Orson Welles' 1942 follow-up, The Magnificent Ambersons, which will be the first film we discuss this week on the show. We will also be discussing Platform, Zhashenka's 2000 film, uh, and also talking about Orson Welles as our person of the week and picking our cinema center. Uh, nostalgia film, so, a film that you know ties into to a you know an era that we think has passed. Uh, with me, as always, is Sean Gilman. Sean, how are you doing on this harried, crazy, family-filled house-selling weekend? I freed a pigeon from my stove. <laughs> you certainly did. We're recording later than usual because um, because Sean's had quite a crazy weekend, and he texted me about an hour ago, right before we were about to to record, and he said. Uh, I'm home now, but there's a pigeon in my stove. And so, <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's just another... I freed what? it. I freed it. The pigeon, the pigeon lives outside now. That's good. Yeah. He was trying to squat. He knew you were selling the house. He thought he could squat there, um, at least temporarily. But, um, well, it's good to hear from you. I'm glad that you're, uh, you're pigeon-free now. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think I, it might have been a lucky pigeon because you know we hadn't had any offers on our house, and then like pigeon goes into the house, two offers over the weekend. So, boom, there you yeah, go, lucky pigeon. And now it's gone. <laughs> so this is just going to be a disaster. The house is going to crumble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you want to talk about the Magnificent Ambersons? Yeah, we really should. And uh, who who better to uh, open the discussion of the Magnificent Ambersons but Orson Welles himself? That's right. The magnificence of the Ambersons began in 1873. Their splendor lasted throughout all the years that saw their Midland town spread and darken into a city. In that town in those days... All the women who wore silk or velvet knew all the other women who wore silk or velvet. And everybody knew everybody else's family horse and carriage. The only public conveyance was the streetcar. A lady could whistle to it from an upstairs window, and the car would halt at once and wait for her. While she shut the window, put on her hat and coat, went downstairs, found an umbrella, told the girl what to have for dinner, and came forth from the house. Too slow for us nowadays, because the faster we're carried, the less time we have to spare. Okay, that was a clip from The Magnificent Ambersons, uh, Orson Welles' 1942 follow-up to his debut film, Citizen Kane. The film is based on a novel by Booth Tarkington, and it kind of follows this wealthy family and really zeroes in on their kind of petulant, um, spoiled little child, George, um, who grows up and comes between the mo- his mother, Isabel, um, and Joseph Cotton, who is a man who grew up kind of pining for her, and because of circumstances, they didn't end up getting together. But then they try to, um, once they're both widowed later in life, and uh, George doesn't like that. So George, George does everything in his power to, to stop them from doing it. Um, the Magnificent Ambersons is infamous because it was taken away from Wells um, while he was working on another film in South America. And they reshot the ending, cut out about 45 minutes of the film, and released it in a the version that we get today. Um, the, the original cut at Wells' version of the film uh, is no longer with us. It was destroyed. Um, and so this is the best we're going to get. And 
just a couple of weeks ago, you know, I was going through some Wells stuff that I hadn't seen before, like his Macbeth. Um, and I made a list on Letterboxd where I was ranking all the Wells films that I'd seen. And I, I mentioned kind of flippantly that I would probably never get around to watching Magnificent Ambersons because it would just make me sad. And you commented, as long as well as somebody else, um, saying that, you know, it's it's still worth a shot. It's still a it's still a good film, even though it's it's bastardized and, and not the whole director's vision that it is. And so, you know, I finally gave in. Um, stubborn old me kind of seeded the way and, and decided to dive into this thing. And um you know, and I tried to watch this without knowing about the cuts and and you know the incompleteness of the whole thing, and and I think I, I managed to do that. I still think of the eight Orson Welles films that I've seen that this is the weakest one. Um, part partly because of of those circumstances that surround it, but f- for a couple other reasons too, and. I should qualify that by saying every movie directed by Orson Welles is pretty great and you should watch them all. Um, how does Magnificent Ambersons fall on your kind of Welles ranking, Sean? Uh, it's, it's probably, you know, in the middle. Uh, the, the good stuff in it is, is really good, and it's some of my favorites of Welles stuff. But the, the ending is, is pretty bad. But yes. it, it's it's bad in an in an interesting way. It's not bad in a in a mind-numbingly stupid kind of way. Like I I don't think it's a it's a complete disaster. And I definitely think it, it's worth seeing just for you know the, for the good stuff that's in it because that that stuff is really cool. Uh, there I I think I've seen more Wells movies than you, and um, there there's a couple. Uh, for sure, that I would consider lesser than than Amberson's, like uh, his TV film *The Immortal Story* or uh, uh, *The Stranger*, which is which is a fine movie, but it, it doesn't like reach the heights of the good parts of Amberson's. I think. Uh, yeah, I that, not that just either. off the off the top of my head, those those two would be would definitely be lesser. Yeah, I haven't seen either of those, so I can't I can't say to that. You know, I've I've seen the major stuff. I've seen you know Kane and um, you know. Chimes at Midnight, um, F for Fake. Uh, Chimes at Midnight and F for Fake are my two favorites, um, I would say. Yeah, well, I think, I think we'll talk but, more about uh, his other movies in the uh, Person of the Week segment. Yes, yes, we will. Um, so so yeah, let, let's, let's, let's talk about Ambersons. Was it, was it horribly you know, sad for you? Did, did, you uh, did you like it? Are you glad that you finally watched it? Or do you wish you, it had just uh, remained a... a a symbol of all that was wrong with Hollywood. A <laughs> um, little bit of both. Like, I mean, for the duration of the movie, for for most of the movie, um, I was I was fine with it. The the saddest moment for me is actually the ending, and this is in my letterbox review, which is very short. But um, the end of the very 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 end of the movie, after the studio mandated you know um, happy ending, um, which you know. To be is is the the way the mo- is the way the book ends as well, um, and we can dig into that in a, in a little bit. But um, after that, there is the credits, which are actually spoken by Wells as he introduces everybody that was involved in the film, which is a totally awesome sequence where he shows um, not just the you know 
the faces of the, the the actors that start in the film, but then you know um, he'll show like a, a camera and, and tell you that you know Rob, uh, Robert Wise was involved in the editing, and he'll show you you know it's a Stan, microphone. Stanley or Cortez shot it, and and yeah, you know the sound recording, which is really cool. Yeah, but the final credit is um, shows this microphone sitting there, and it says. Um, and I am Orson Welles, and I wrote and directed this film. It's a Mercury production, or whatever he says. And to me, that's that's when the knowledge of how the movie got taken away from him and all of that stuff kind of floods into me, and I got really, really sad when I heard that. Um, just knowing that, you know, after that point... It was no real. It was no longer really his production and and stuff. So that's where it really made me sad. But for the most part, during the movie, um, I was rolling with it. Um, and you're right. There's some amazing, incredible stuff here. Um, the compositions, the visual compositions in this thing are off the charts. And I mean, they rival the stuff in Kane. Um, you know, the way he just puts faces in the screen. And there's one scene very early on, I think it's a scene of, of people gossiping. Um, and it's very, it's very tight, but he, he manages to cram like five different heads into the, the frame with one person like, you know, in between uh, like a, um, uh, what you might call it, um, a sewing machine. And, and it, just the way, it's, it's just really beautifully composed stuff. Um, and his work with shadows is absolutely stunning in this thing. There are scenes just plays out in shadow but it's for effect it's not like just bad lighting or something you know what i mean um i, I love so it's, it's, the uh, i love the narrational approach of the the opening like half hour or so of the film not not just wells's narration which is is fantastic and he has a great voice and he delivers it well which you know we we heard in that clip but uh uh, the the way he kind of uh, tells the story of the the Ambersons and their role in the town through like the chorus of voices of the people talking about you know like the young George and hoping that he gets his comeuppance and like the little gossip of of the town um, he he goes away from that in the second half of the film and I think it loses something and I, I don't know if that's uh, a studio change or it's just that he got into the meat of the story and and you know, needed to narrate it less, but it, it's got such a, a weird energy and, and rhythm to it that that's unlike any other kind of Hollywood movie of that era that I've seen. And it, it's unlike Citizen Kane, which also uses like unusual narration techniques, but, but this one is, is a little different. Yeah. And, um, I didn't really notice the well I think I kind of did but yeah the the narration does come back near the very near the end and you do kind of once once it comes back you you realize how much you kind of missed it from that section um but yeah the beginning I was marveling in just like the first 5 minutes how much stuff he manages to cram in like exposition wise without it feeling like a a narrative dump or anything it's just it's 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 incredibly engaging and and he just really just you know plows right through a lot, a lot of, of important stuff really quickly in a very efficient, um, engaging manner, which is, which yeah. is hard to do. Like it, it opens uh, with like a, a, what appears to be like a digression about uh, fashion, like the fashion of the 18, 1870s, I think is when the, the story, the story starts. And, uh, 
you know, he's like making fun of like the hats that people wear. And one year they wear a hat with a wide rim and the other wear they wear like a bowler hat. And he's talking about the hats and the, the cut of the coats and the style of pants that they wear. And then as, you know, it's just like random person modeling different styles of hats. We, we see that what we're getting is the actual prologue to the story and the whole history of Joseph Cotton's uh, wooing of Isabel Amberson and then his uh, ultimate rejection by her after he shows up drunk. And it's, it it's all ties together in, you know, the kind of the, the social patterns of the time, not just the fashion, but the idea of the serenade. And you, you understand why she would reject him based on like the rules of the society that he's obliquely laid out. Mm -hmm. And all of that is just the backstory to what will be like the main plot. And it's all conveyed in like three minutes of no real dialogue on screen. It's just Wells talking about the fashion of the late 19th century. Yeah, no, it's, it's stunning. And I agree with you. Um, I, I feel like there's an energy to that sequence that kind of disappears um, later on in the film. And um, I think the, I think right. The, the film does suffer from that. Um and interestingly, you know, an interesting part about this film is that, um, you know, Wells, of course, he's, he's, you know, kind of this omnipotent force because he's, he's narrating in those sections. But he famously doesn't actually appear as a character in this movie, which is kind of surprising. I mean, um, is, he, is there any other film that he directed that he's not in it that you know of? Uh, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Oh, he's, no, he's in that, too. Um, but what's nice about this is that he kind of seeds the spotlight um, to some of his buddies from the Mercury um, Theater, um, particularly Joseph Cotton, who plays Eugene, um, the guy pining away for Isabel. And uh, I think this is a fantastic performance from Joseph Cotton. Um, I, I've always liked Joseph Cotton. Um, you know, he's in, in great films like Shadow of a Doubt and, uh, you know, The Third Man with Orson Welles and stuff. Um, but he is so charming and so sweet in this movie. And I just, I'm, I'm really glad that this could be a showcase for him. Because, um, you know, when it's him and Wells on screen at the same time, I kind of defer to Wells. <laughs> um, but uh, I think he's really wonderful here. What do you think of Joseph Cotton? Oh, I, I love Joseph Cotton. And, and uh, well, we are, we are a, a, a very pro Joseph Cotton household. My, my wife thinks that he looks like her grandfather. So she is always willing to watch a Joseph Cotton movie because she liked her grandfather. <laughs> so, so we, wa we watch a lot of them. Uh, 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 kind of obscure Joseph Cotton movie that I'd recommend is, is a, a Portrait of Jenny, uh, which was directed by William Deedley in 1949, in which uh, he's like a, a, a painter who falls in love with a girl who might be a ghost or like an apparition or something played by Jennifer Jones. It's a really cool movie. Lillian Gish is in it too. You'd like it. I, I think I would. Lillian Gish is dope. Yeah. Uh, but, so let me, let me throw a little caveat out there. So let, me, let me throw a little you know, wrench in the gear of what I was just setting up there. I love me some Agnes Moorhead. I really do. Unfortunately, and I, and she's got a couple of really great moments in this movie. Um, in particular, the scene in in the kitchen um, where she's being teased. She plays. I should have set it up. She's she plays Aunt Fanny, who is also in love with Joseph Cotton's character. Um, and for a while, she's under the impression that he's 
into her too, not Isabel. Um, but it's that's not true, and and she's a very tragic kind of um, spinster kind of character as the film goes on, and she kind of aids and abets George, and unfortunately, while early on you kind of see the humanity in her and see how sad she is, she gets a little histrionic by the end, and um, there are a couple scenes that are I'm kind of sad to say a little cringeworthy coming from Agnes Moorhead, who who normally I think is wonderful but um she she, yeah yeah i i i I agree no there's uh there's one scene in particular that that she goes way over the top and i have read in the past the details of the changes that that rko made to the film but i don't i don't remember them and uh i of course did not do any research for this podcast so (laughs) so i don't know what was added or what was taken out i i assume that there is more to her character in the original film but i don't i don't know that that's the case because because as it is she seems to be like this really kind of repressed you know passive aggressive kind of woman and then all of a sudden there's like this giant histrionic scene that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense that isn't properly set up and and maybe yeah. and maybe that was that was Wells's fault. Maybe that was in his original version. I don't know. It you know it's easy with it in a case like this to ascribe all of the bad things in the film to studio interference and all the good things to you know the the auteur's original vision. And you know, in the absence of, of more evidence, I'm I'm just going to go ahead and do that. Well, but so I did I did do. A- um, and the the scene that I'm talking about in particular is there's a scene very close to the end where she um, is arguing with George and they're trying to plan their life after um, Isabel's passing and and they they're broke they're pretty much destitute and she has this scene where she's um, leaning next to uh, a water heater or a, a boiler or something like that yeah. and I did I did read that the orig- that was reshot. That scene was reshot um, by the studio after it was taken away from Wells, but that the original Wells version, according to the sources that I read, was an even more bombastic scene um, <laughs> that uh, that test audiences laughed at openly. Now, like you said, we'll never know exactly how that scene played out in its longer form, um, and and also, you know, sometimes over the top can work if it's done. You know, by you know, like maybe Wells's direction of her going over the top was better than what the studio did as over the top. Who knows? Well, but I, um, I, I think what might have been possible is if there's just been more groundwork laid. Like if if the movie becomes increasingly melodramatic as it goes along, to where right. to where that kind of histrionics makes sense in the aesthetics of the film. As it is, the the movie's not even ninety minutes long. So yeah. So to 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 make that kind of of jump so quickly, it it seems awkward. It really does. It really does. Um, but to be fair, that earlier scene with Agnes Moorhead, where she's she's more low key, she still she still has kind of a bit of a breakdown and she storms out of the room, um, is phenomenal. And it's just like a um, single shot. And it's and it's you know it's deep focus as as Wells is known to do and um, the way she just kind of crumbles in this scene as as um, George and um, her brother or or uncle or whatever he is um, 
kind of needle her about about um, Eugene. Uh, Fanny Fanny is uh, is Isabel's husband's sister, right? So the uh, so the, the mother, other guy is is Uncle Jack, who is Isabel's brother, right? So okay, it's, it's that's her. Yeah. It's her uh, brother-in-law, brother-in-law, and, and George, her her nephew, right? Um, and she's great in that scene, and and you know that's why I kind of try to give her the benefit of the doubt and say like she was pushed. <laughs> to these extremes or or whatever because she is really solid in in those early runnings who is not solid through the whole movie and this actually I kind of will kind of blame Wells for this um is is Tim Holt as George um who I'm sorry I couldn't get a a beat on him the whole time like I and which is kind of crucial to this movie I mean he's supposed to be petulant and he's supposed to be you know whiny and selfish and stuff but I don't know there needs to be something else there for me to you know I, I know everybody I, waits for his com- comeuppance but I just really don't like him <laughs> yeah I don't, I, I don't I don't think you can and I think that's that's uh, one of the really interesting things about the film like I, th- I think it's an impossible part and I think I you you can't play George Minifer and and make him sympathetic because the whole point is he is not sympathetic at all yet uh the the Morgans just Joseph Cotton and and his daughter Ann Baxter like him anyway and that's just because they're awesome and he is just the worst I know and and, and I think I and, think Ann Baxter is is fantastic at that like she has some some terrific scenes with him where she's basically saying I don't understand why I'm attracted to you because I don't like you at all. But here I am. <laughs> I still like you. I don't know why, but you're a terrible person. Well, I think one of my favorite scenes in the movie is his uncle Jack's after his mother has died and and he's splitting town. He's he's off to to do something else. Um and they and they're at a train station. It's just George and Jack and Jack says to him um oh, what is his line? I he never, says I never uh, liked you. I, well, yeah, but he, he says like I've always been fond of you, but I've never liked you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and uh, and that kind of sums up the character, um, which unfortunately makes me watch the movie from a distance, just because like it's hard for me to buy into it because he's he's so one sided and so um, stubborn and annoying, and and it just doesn't work for me um unfortunately well i think i think, um, I think it's kind of essential to the the uh the idea of nostalgia that that wells is exploring in the film in in that it's it's uh, he's looking back at this thing and and he had a a childhood that's that's somewhat similar to the kind of town in magnificent Ambersons. he's like from the midwest he's he's from a fairly well-off family um i think his his father like was friends with booth tarkington not exactly. I don't remember that. I don't know if I remember that exactly correctly, but there's like some family relation, um, and he's he's looking back on it fondly um, at the ridiculousness of it, ridiculousness of it, and also at the kind of terrible pe- you know people that these you know 19th century rich you know elites were, and he. He's condemning them while remembering them fondly at the same time. Right. 
And that's, I mean, it's really easy to make a, a movie about, you know, robber barons and, and the rich people where they are evil and it's a good thing that they're not rich anymore. Like, th- there is no um, schadenfreude in Magnificent Ambersons, even though everyone's always waiting for George to get his comeuppance. You don't really feel all that happy when he does. You feel bad for him. And you don't know why, because he's such a a, a creep. <laughs> yeah, he's a real creep. Um, he is a real creep. Uh, he, he's got that great line where where he like he he refuses to engage in business. He doesn't think it's a fit activity for men to have a profession. And 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 Baxter asks him like, "What do you want to do?" And he's like, "I'd be a yachtsman, of course." Right. Right. <laughs> Such a tool. Yeah, you, you you can't help but love him because he's just so ridiculously awful. I wouldn't go that far, but <laughs> that's just me. Um, and I, well, th- I think I think Tim Holt captures that, and I think that's why it's a really thankless role because he can't be charismatic because George isn't charismatic, and he can't be charming because George isn't charming, and he can't be smart because George isn't smart. But he, he has to be human. And I think, well, and I think he brings I, a humanity to the the role, if well, not a sympathy. Said, that's why I said, like, I, I I kind of fault Wells a little bit at at this, just because, um, I, I, I you're right. I feel like, it, I mean, he's going for what he's going for, but what he was going for wasn't working for me, and I and I ascribe that to the you know the screenplay and the direction more than to. Tim Holt's performance because you're right he he nails what he's there to do um, I just wasn't really too into what he was doing <laughs> All right, so well you you've, you've just, read the you've read the novel how how does this compare to that um, you know it's deep deep within the cobwebs of my mind um, so it's 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 hard for me to like really pick out differences and stuff it it captures the feeling that i got while reading the novel definitely and um i did remember the ending which is kind of like a it, you know it kind of wraps up like like books of that era kind of do where it's like oh all this horrible stuff happened but we forgive you now it's over you know what i mean sure, sure. <laughs> um which is which is what happens here and um the thing that the thing i really remember from the book which translated well into the movie is just this um you know how they evoke this time this time period and and um it really just throws you right into it and i feel like wells i think that's i think that's why wells took this on was he wanted to capture that time and i and i think he succeeded um wonderfully you know um i didn't love the book um, it's, it's definitely, like I said, I, I, I don't remember too much about it, just impressions, but, uh, I feel like that may be what really sold him on it. And I think he did a really, really great job. Um, sp- particularly like this house. Can we talk about this house? I mean, <laughs> well, and the, the, the staircase, this, the staircase, you watch, uh, RKO movies from throughout the, the forties and into the fifties, you'll, you'll see that staircase recur again and again. Cause they, they kept reusing that set cause it's so great. It's yeah. in, uh, it plays a very prominent role in, uh, the seventh victim, uh, a Val Luton horror film. That, that's really good. Yeah. Um, and and the way Wells moves his camera through, and and this is going to be us talking more about what the studio did to, to screw this up. But um, this house is just cavernous. I mean, it's humongous and it's multi multi leveled, and there, 
this, you know, um, a couple of great shots that kind of go up the staircase, you know, and follow people as they're having discussions on, on, you know, landings and stuff. And the most famous, I, as far as I know, the most famous um, butchering of this film is during this party that's thrown in George's honor um, when he returns from college. And you can clearly, when you're watching it now, and even if you didn't know that this movie was was taken away from Wells, I think watching that scene, you could tell that there's a you know disjointedness to it because what Wells does is he sets up this tracking shot through the house um, that comes through the front door, goes through the party, you know, lingers on a few people, and then it's supposed to go upstairs and continue on into the dance hall or whatever that's upstairs. Um, unfortunately, the studio thought that kind of dragged, and so they cut it in the middle of it. Um, and so it's like it's like two or three tracking shots that you're watching, even though it's actually supposed to be one continuous thing. Um, but what is there of it is just stunning. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic, and uh, I, that was one of the things that that I really noticed. I, I knew that the the studio had had cut up the shot. I didn't remember if they had like cut it in half, and and what they do is is it looks like there's one tracking shot that's like cut in three parts, and then yep. different scenes are interpreted are interpolated within it. So. It's it's really really disjointed because it'll be like uh, George and uh, and Ann Baxter talking and they're having like this really interesting conversation. And then you'll cut away to like Uncle Jack for some reason, and then and then back to the the original tracking shot. And you know, no no sane person would would do that. But yeah, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's doesn't weird. make any it's sense. Like if you if you took like the the opening shot of, of of Touch of Evil and then cut to like you know Hank Quinlan on his ranch like drinking a beer, <laughs> and then back to the tracking shot. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, yeah, that's that's a shame. Yeah, it is a real shame. It, uh, it's a real shame. Uh, other other than that, my 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 favorite my favorite actual. Um, shot of the film that that I really noticed this time. This is the third time I think I've I've seen this movie. Um uh the the very opening shots of the of the the film where it's just of the the Amberson mansion. It's just like a straight ahead shot and it, it, he holds on it for a long time and the camera doesn't move. It's it's very reminiscent of uh of like early silent film style. It's like the the streetcar stops in front of the house and then the the streetcar honks the horn and you tell them to wait and they'll just sit there and wait for you to get ready and come down and join the streetcar. Uh I thought that was really neat. It also um reminded me of a kind of uh, Wes Anderson thing. And I think there's a, a huge Amberson's influence on, on Wes Anderson, especially well, the, like the, the Royal Tenenbaums. Half. Yeah. Um, with I'm, the, uh, the kind of uh, slightly sardonic narration, the, the reverence for, for silent film style, the, you know, the odd approach to, to emotions. Uh, I think there's there's a lot of that there. As a uh, as a Wes Anderson hater, did you see that as well? <laughs> why do you have to bring it up? I mean, why why why? Because it's why stew, because it's so why weird. Why stew the pot? <laughs> why stew the pot? Well, here's the thing though about that section, and is that everything 
is working for me in this it it um that whole sequence doesn't work without well i mean it works but it doesn't it doesn't reach the heights of mastery without that fantastic narration from wells that that articulates all of those things you just mentioned the waiting for the streetcar that is timed perfectly for all of that stuff um but and here's the but is that here it doesn't feel flashy and it doesn't it it doesn't feel like um i don't know like a game or something it it just it feels um fluid and organic and and right and whereas in in terms of Wes Anderson and stuff and the stuff that I've seen of his it it feels a lot more um i don't know showy and uh of winking and um nausea inducing <laughs> i i don't know i mean maybe it's just me but i i can think of no better words to describe the the films of Orson Welles than 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 show offy and and uh uh, no, I know. I, I forgot no. the other words that you used, <laughs> but all of that—that's—that's that's Orson no, Welles. <laughs> Flashy. Don't 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 get me wrong. I and uh, you're absolutely right in terms of you know like he he does these things that are are, are heightened and he does these things that are um, playful. You know, c- c- clearly, yeah. But um, but to me, they they all play in service to the overall theme and the whole, and the whole, um, I don't know, the whole feeling of the film. And, and this, the film really feels like this movie feels really evocative of that time period. And it feels like it's actually, it could be a document from that era, the way every, like the, the set and the costumes and the, the recreation of those, those moments really like I said, when I was talking about the novel, really set you in this place. Whereas when I'm watching a Wes Anderson movie, it feels more like a playhouse version of whatever it's trying to be. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense in that I, I understand what you're saying, but uh, as the film spotting guys <laughs> say, you're, you're completely wrong. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think I think that's that's enough for for Orson Welles for now. We'll we'll talk about him a little bit more later. Why'd you have to bring Wes Anderson into this? I mean, <laughs> always I'm 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 going to do it on every show until you you give up. Well, this is the final episode of the George's Handers show. Thank you all <laughs> for listening. It's been fun. Okay, fine. Why don't we? Uh... I mean, I might I might come back around to the guy sometime. I you know I I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, there's some movies that I hated years ago that I came back around. To. Uh, I just, I don't know. Well, I do know that there's one thing that we agree on, and it is the uh, the greatness of Creedence Clearwater. CCR. Yes. <laughs> you just shout over me. <laughs> Nobody knows what I, I did. said. <laughs> Well, maybe this song is now, you know, this. The, I thought this this song would tie in to Magnificent Ambersons really well, but maybe it's going to tie into my, uh, you know, lack of appreciation for Wes Anderson. Um, this is Someday Never Comes.
All right, so it's been an eventful couple of weeks in the uh, online talking about movies or talking about movie critics online world, and so we've got uh, we got a few news items here to get through. I don't know that we have a whole lot to say about any of them, but we'll we'll tick them off and and see uh, what ticks us off. <laughs> uh, the the first is a uh, is a pair of stories. Uh, coming out of Entertainment Weekly. Uh, the first was that they decided that they were going to launch like a, a social platform where um, people could write articles for them and they wouldn't pay them. They would just get prestige from being associated with Entertainment Weekly, which is just uh, another example of, uh, of old media, media trying to capitalize on you know, people like us that do, that do shit for free just because we like it. Uh, and at the same time pushing actual professionals who try to make a living at writing about movies out of a job, which Entertainment Weekly then did like three days later by firing uh, Owen Gleiberman, who had been the, the film critic at the magazine since its founding 25 years ago. So that was depressing. Yeah, way to go, Entertainment Weekly. When I think of, you know, I must say, when I think of prestigious, I think Entertainment Weekly. And and this is just you know confirmed <laughs> my, yeah. my opinions on it. Yeah, it, that, I mean it's just stupid. It's just stupid. This uh, you know Huffington Post kind of um, let's just get content for free. And uh, I, I don't, it's, you know what it reminds me of. So I used to play in band, and there's this horrible insidious. Um, thing that they do that certain places do or people do it's called pay to play where what you do is if you're a local band like some you know big venue that you know usually like only touring acts come through or whatever um they'll do this thing where they'll they'll rent out the place for for a concert and you can play there and say hey i played at the moore or the fillmore in san francisco or or whatever uh, the rainbow or something um but what you have to do is you you sign up to play there but then you're given a certain number of tickets that you have to sell to people um so basically you're you're paying you you pay to get in onto this list and then you also have to do the job of like 
going out and trying to get people to come and sell the tickets. Um, and it's just this horrible means of preying upon um, hungry musicians that don't know any better. And um, luckily, I was never involved in any of those things um, because they said, I'm like the word because what ends up happening is it's like 12 bands on a bill and they're only playing for each other because nobody else wants to go see 12 terrible local bands play in like a cavernous place um and it's and, and it's just it's just terrible because the people they think like in in industry executives are going to be there um or something like that and it's it's i it's yeah. just like that so fuck that stuff yeah you know i i feel bad for professional film critics because you, people like us that do this for free and give away podcasts are like I said this our last kind of, episode of the George Center. <laughs> well, we are we are kind of killing their industry and not and it's not that that we are we are good because I I certainly don't think that we're as good as as professional film critics and I would never make that claim. Um and we're not trying to do this, you know, to make a living. We do this because it's fun to talk about movies and it's fun to write about movies. Um the the problem is that there's only so much time that a normal human being has to devote to film criticism. So every hour and a half that somebody listens to an episode of the George Sanders show that they get for free is an hour and a half that they're not reading Entertainment Weekly. And there's like a finite amount of time that people have. So if they can get stuff for free that is, you know, reasonably competent, why would they pay for something <laughs> that's, you know, fully competent, you know? Wait, wait, pause, can you pause for a second? Sure. Um, if, if anybody listening could take like a minute, just a minute of your time after listening to this episode. No, do it right now. Pause the episode. Log into iTunes and rate the show. And 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 just all you have to say is reasonably competent. Just please do that for me because that would like make my life. If if there were like forty reviews, I don't know how many people listen to the show. Like if there were like twelve reviews on iTunes that just said reasonably competent, oh my god, I would die a happy man. Okay, yeah, back that's, to the. <laughs> that, that's really all we're shooting for here. I mean, <laughs> half the time you can barely understand what Mike is saying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Man, I love it. Anyway, so um, like it, it's it's a tough. So you're blaming because, us because it's our fault. It is our fault because because people yeah. do this as a hobby that that other people are trying to make a living at, and you can't you can't do that if there are thousands, if not millions, of of people that are willing to create free content on the internet in talking about movies and writing about movies. How can you then ask a company to pay you a living wage to do that same thing? Like it's just. It's just not a viable career anymore because it's it's too much fun. People will do it in their in their free time. Yeah, you know? no, you're, you're right. So I, I I mean, I mean it, it it sucks, but it's that's that I mean that just seems to be the way that it is. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I think I th- I don't think that 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 daily reviewing of movies that like the weekly you know, the old style, like Roger Ebert kind of, you know, newspaper reporter review of movies is really a viable career path anymore. I think if you, if you want to make a a living at film criticism, you're, you're, you're writing books or you're creating Mm -hmm. like an awesome website that is drawing advertising and lots and lots of, of people to come and see it. 
like I don't I don't know if like the people who who uh, started the dissolve are actually making any money off of it, but that seems to me the only the only way to go to make like a one stop place that that a bunch of people will go and you'll have build this audience like the the AV Club has done or or something like that or ain't it cool news in in their niche. Um, because, yeah, because there there are literally thousands of people on Twitter who who don't get paid at all for writing about movies who are as competent as as ninety percent of the newspaper film critics in America. I I will agree with you on that. So, I don't read Twitter, but yeah. I also don't read newspapers. So there you go. <laughs> well, uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's sad and depressing, and I feel bad, but. But you're gonna not do? going to stop doing it. But I'm not going to stop doing it because <laughs> well, it's fun but, I mean, for me. <laughs> Even though I'm, I'm, you know, I'm killing Owen Gleiberman with every blog post I write. <laughs> He's not the only one you're killing. Yeah. So, sorry, sorry, Mr. Gleiberman. I, I feel bad. All right. Let's uh, let's talk about something else. Uh, from that depressing topic, let's talk about uh, depressing movies. Uh, you found this one. Why don't you tell us about this uh, this article that you found on the IndieWire? Uh, well, the IndieWire thing from Sam Adams kind of spiraled out from a thing from the Dissolve, where uh, Noel Murray wrote about um, hearing this trend of people um, choosing not to go out to the theater to see a film because the movie might be too upsetting for them. And, and the film that's really brought to the forefront with this is 12 years a slave. Um, and you know, there was an article a while ago that, you know, even said that people that voted for it for the Academy Award didn't even watch it because they thought it was too, too depressing or whatever. Um, but the thought was, you know, um, I, if I watch it in my home, I can, I can fast forward through the, you know, upsetting parts or I can, you know, turn the volume down or, or do something like that. And, and Noel Murray wasn't really saying one way or the other, like, you know, you're doing it wrong. Um, but Sam Adams at IndieWire uh, decided to take it up and say, yeah, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> um, and his argument, you know, is basically like, you know, you should give your full attention to the movie and, and it, you should um, be willing to, be uncomfortable and and not and and then he kind of spiraled off and and went off into like you know watching movies at home makes the movie makes the movie kind of a secondary thing if you pause it to like check your email or um he mentions making tacos in the middle of of something um that's because of basically a, a, he that's because of a slate thing i don't know if you saw it i think it was slate uh, I saw the link. I didn't actually read it, but um. uh, this group of of horrible, horrible New Yorkers decided that they had never seen Schindler's List, so they decided to make like a, a wine and taco night out of it. Korean tacos, not just any tacos, uh. and it's it's like the the dumbest thing. This is the <laughs> dumbest thing I read in Slate all week. Nice, <laughs> the new journalism. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so basically. Um, Sam Adams was arguing, well, you know what? There's a way to do this wrong, and you people are doing it wrong. And you know what? I agree with him. I mean, like, I I think going out to a movie in the theater is great because you're kind of 
forced to engage with the film. And I'm a real stickler and I know this about myself and I try and give a little leeway, you know, cause when I'm at home, I'm also the same way. Um, you know, that, with that being said, 20 minutes into any movie I start watching um, with my girlfriend, my dog will jump on the table blocking the screen. And so it'll take us like five minutes to get him settled. So I do miss, you know, I have to pause the movie and I get taken out of the movie um, for about five minutes and then I restart it. But um, this idea of, of um, you know, I talk to people at work who, you know, we talk about the movies we watched over the weekend and, and they mention you know, um, yeah, I watched this movie um, while I was vacuuming or, or, or like literally they say that like, like, Oh, it was something that I put on while I did the dishes. And I'm like, you didn't watch the movie. If you, if you're doing housework with it on in the other room, you're not fucking watching the goddamn movie. You know what I mean? Um, and so I'm a real stickler, even when I'm at my own house, um, about this kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, I think it's best to go, you know, if you can, go see a movie in the theater. And, and if, you, if you think you're going to be upset by something, um, that's an okay, like, it's okay to get upset about something. It's okay to um, have uncomfortable emotions um, because that's what art is supposed to make you do. It's supposed to make you think. It's supposed to make you, you know, um, feel and... Uh, if your if your sensibilities are too, I don't know. <laughs> Lindy's in the room. Yeah, she's in the room doing stuff now, so it's distracting me. Yeah. Uh, so you're not really podcasting. If I'm not really well, podcasting. <laughs> oh, I do tons of stuff. While I'm playing Miss Pac-Man right now. Um, no, okay. Uh, okay. Well, I I have I have a few thoughts on this subject and, and on what you just said because you just said a lot. So I wasn't taking notes, so I'm probably going to miss something. But uh, uh, First of all, I, I agree with you that, that watching movies in a the theater is superior because it, it demands your attention. There's, there's less, uh, less distraction, whether it's a dog or, or a kid or, you know, putting the, the clothes in the dryer or whatever. Um, I think it works especially well for, for films that are demanding of your attention, like the, uh, the movie that uh, we're going to talk about next, uh, Judge Inca's Platform. Uh, films like that, the kind of very slow, minimalist art movies, uh, they can they can be really difficult to watch if you're watching it on your really comfortable couch late at night. I, I tend to get really sleepy. Uh, so I, I much prefer to watch a movie in theater wherever I can because, you know, it forces me to sit up straight and, and pay attention to what's going on. In addition to all the stuff about, like, the screen is bigger, so it's it's just a different experience than watching it on your your television. Uh, additionally, I, I will say that, that I, I don't really care if, if somebody doesn't want to watch a movie because they think it's, it's going to make them uncomfortable or upsetting. I, I think that's a perfectly valid reason not to watch a movie. Like, not everyone watches movies for art. People, some people watch them for background noise. Some people watch them just to pass the time, you know, before they die. And that's, yeah, but... that's, that's a perfectly valid choice that people want to make. If people want to live their lives that way, I'm I'm not going to judge them. But then them. don't watch that movie. Period. That, like, that's that's what I'm going to say. Like if if you are going to watch a Twelve Years a Slave, or you know, then actually commit to watching it. Don't don't half watch, you know, an art movie. You know, you you don't you don't put on a, a Ho Shao Shen film and then do the dishes because right. that's not it, watching the film. 
Right, and you know, like there are plenty of movies that I don't watch because they make me uncomfortable. Like I don't watch like torture porn. You know, I don't watch like Hostel or Saw or any of those I, movies I don't, because I don't watch Lars von Trier movies because that guy just makes me angry. <laughs> right, and and so I'm not saying you need to see every movie no matter what because you know, but yeah, if if you're gonna see it, if you feel compelled, if you feel like for whatever reason, like, because you want to be involved in, like, you know, the cultural dialogue about a movie like 12 Years a Slave, which, you know, it, you know, wins Best Picture, so I feel like I need to see it, then you need to fucking watch the movie. Like, you, you don't, you know, yeah, you yeah, don't fast forward through the scene where, um, you know, someone's getting uh, beaten because it doesn't make you feel good. Because guess what? It's not supposed to make you feel good. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, I, I overtook what you were saying, but but yeah, I, I think we agree on that. So yeah. let's uh, uh, on that kind of ranty note, let's let's talk about this uh, <laughs> neat little rant that uh, uh, David Callett posted on the uh, the TCM movie Morlocks, which is basically him him getting pissed off that that people on internet comment sections and everyone should know who's listening to this don't read the comments. Um, uh, basically, people think that they're entitled. To movies, and if like a, a film hasn't been released on DVD that they that they really want to see, they think they have basically the right to steal it from the internet. And uh, I agree with him that that is dumb. That stealing is stealing. That I I grew up in in yeah I, I've mentioned this before on the show. I grew up in in Spokane in the 1980s, and there was. A lot of films that I wanted to see that weren't available to me, and I didn't have the option of, of stealing them. Uh, they were just the idea that that everything should be available to you sitting on your laptop is was absurd. Like it's some kind of like you know vast cornucopia of film out there that whatever I want to watch, I should just be able to watch and not have to pay for it. Is is just it's bizarre and. You know, I don't want to go on like a rant on like the the whole you know millennial generation and how terrible they are, but <laughs> the the kind of thing that that Callet posted kind of inspires those sentiments in me. You, uh, you, no, you're I, like on the generational cusp. You're you're younger than me, but you're not really like the these kids today. So so, what do you think? I've never torrented anything in my life. I I don't know how to do it. Um, well. I agree with you. I, I agree with you, and I agree with him uh, in regards to that. And and he makes a really good point. And he talks about how, as a kid, he loved um, the Godzilla movies. And there was a point where he had a chance to see Destroy All Monsters, and he he missed the opportunity to see it. And he didn't get to see it for like twenty years. Um, but it made it so much more special with when he finally got around to seeing it. Um, for that very reason, and it and it makes me think of a number of things in my life where that's been the case. I remember um, Swordsman Two. Uh, my friend Adam fell in love with Swordsman Two. I don't know how he saw it originally, um, but we saw Swordsman Two, and this was pre DVD. This is still VHS era, and no local video stores in our small town had it. Um, you know, and so what we did is we we took a train to San Francisco. And went through Chinatown, going into these little shops and and asking them for if they had VHS copies of Swordsman Two, and we eventually found one. Um, I don't even know if it was subtitled, but um, anyway, um, and and I 
and that made it really special and 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 this idea of just like it's a problem with music now too um if i may where nowadays people just will will just grab as much music as they possibly can and it doesn't the the rewarding experience of like you know getting the new album and you know i don't care how you you know if if you get the the physical copy or whatever whatever but like i re- you know that feeling of of possession and and taking something out and kind of studying it is gone now because it's all it's people just grab it from wherever they can and they just dump it onto a hard drive and it's just there and um it just adds to the glut of stuff and i'm guilty of that too with in terms of music i just you know rip stuff and forget about it i don't even listen to it but anyway yeah um, i I do that i i I pay for all the music i get but but the difference is like i can afford to buy more music now than when i was in high school like when i when i was in high school i bit like buy like one cd you know every couple of weeks and then i would live with that cd and listen to it over and over again and read the liner notes and you know really get to know that cd now i can just like push a couple buttons and buy like five albums and then i end up listening to like half of three of them and then the rest just sit on my hard drive until i I rediscover them someday oh yeah i bought that you know three years ago i should have listened to it well this ties there are two things that this brings to mind one um is and th- and this is me getting revenge for Wes Anderson. Uh, Harmony Kareem, uh, when he made Julian Donkey Boy, his follow up to Gummo, I remember reading somewhere that he said he was never gonna it was never gonna get released in home video. You could only see it in the theater, and I thought that was so cool. Um, and I remember seeing it in Portland um, when it came out in 1999, and really cherishing cherishing um, that moment um, because. I was like, you know, this is the only time I'm probably going to get to see this thing. And um, it made it really special. And I, th- I think that movie's dope. Um, and, of course, that's not the case. It ended up coming out on DVD like a couple... It was, it was a little while. It was a few years. but um, And that kind of cheapened it, you know, a little bit. And then, also, there was just an announcement that the Wu-Tang Clan has just completed work on a uh, double album called uh, Once Upon a Time in Shaolin that they're only making one copy of and they're touring it they're touring it through art museums and you have to go to the art museum to listen to it and then when they're done touring the album they're going to sell it to the highest bidder for like 5 million dollars and I think that's fucking awesome yeah, I'm sorry pretty, I think that's, that's pretty neat I think that's really cool. But anyway, I'm just I'm turning all of these into rants about music. So um. okay, well, uh, something else that started as a rant about music was like the the big cinephile news story of the last couple of weeks was uh, an editorial that uh, film critic at RogerEbert.com, uh, Matt Solarzeitz, wrote about uh, basically complaining that uh, that. People who write about film and television don't talk about the form of film and television. They talk about, you know, recaps of the plot and the the literary aspects of of the storytelling, or you know, sometimes the the you know political uh, aspects of it. That's representation of various minorities or what have you. Instead of talking about you know actual technique of, of filmmaking and and all of the actual artistry that goes into that. And his, he's, it's basically like a, a call to arms to talk about form when you're writing about film. Uh, 
I think hallelujah. Yay. I think that's great. Yeah. We, we both agree with that. I think it's pretty self-evident and, and I think it, it's something that, uh, that we try to do on the show. Uh, we're not, uh, I wouldn't say that we're particularly good at it, but but we try to to cover all aspects of the movie when we when we talk about them. At least everything that comes to mind for for us. Yeah, absolutely, and you're right. I mean, I have a pretty limited vocabulary when it comes to like you know rack zoom and and stuff like that. Like you know, I, I um, but I I do see movies visually and and kind of and and I take note when I see something that's really well done like that and and also you know in terms of audio like if there's something like i watched um uh the big country recently for western month and and the music score is just so great in that movie and the way that it plays with what's going on on screen is just fantastic um and so yeah i definitely take notes of those things and um but the flip side is you know sometimes you watch a movie and none of that stuff jumps out at you and you know i think we've I think we last week when we talked about Bingo Long and uh, Pride of the Yankees, I don't think we talked about composition or any of that stuff once. But, you know, sometimes it doesn't come up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, but no, I think it's true. I think there's a dearth of, of, of discussion of that kind of stuff. And, you know, Matt, when he wrote that thing, you know, he said, you know, just, you know, 10%, you know, of your, of your thing. He doesn't want – he's not – saying everybody needs to always talk about, you know, it from that angle. But you're right. Oftentimes you'll read a review and it just recaps the plot. And <laughs> you're like, why what's the point of this here, you know? All right. Well well speaking of, of film form, let's talk about our person of the week, Orson Wells, who uh is is hard to find a a more flamboyant formalist in uh in the Hollywood studio era than Orson Wells. And I don't know. He's he's one of my favorite filmmakers. He's a uh, he's he's the best. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's he's absolutely incredible. I completely agree with you. Um, I the thing with him. What's interesting about him is that whereas a lot of directors people kind of ape their style and stuff and, and get away with it often. Um, I, no one can do it like him. I'm just, I'm sorry. Like no one can pull it off. And you know, I think a lot of that has to do with like circumstances and stuff, like especially the films he made, you know, post um, Hollywood where he was constrained by, uh, you know, non-existent budgets and stuff like that and still managed to turn out these really evocative, um, amazing things um i think is just it's genius is, is really what it is i mean um and i don't know he he just fired on all cylinders and he was awesome from beginning to end you know like i think that's my biggest problem is that like there's this conception of him in some circles where you know it's and i i think a lot of people like that would probably listen to the show you know have moved beyond that idea, but general wisdom is that he made Kane and then he kind of, you know, floundered for the rest of his career or whatever. Um, which is not the case. Yeah. couldn't, couldn't be further from the truth. Right. Uh, I mean, citizen Kane is, is, is 
not his best movie. <laughs> at, at, at the same time, there's there's a lot of uh, kind of hero worship about Orson Welles in that from the from the opposite camp that you know he could do no wrong and all of these negative stories about him are are all easily explained away. Uh, I don't I don't think that's the case either. I think he he was kind of a, a ridiculous figure. I just happen to find his ridiculousness really charming and really funny. And uh, and while he's you know doing all of these kind of you know goofy things as he's you know basically weaseling money out of various investors in order to to fund different movies and stopping the starting projects and doing all kinds of crazy stuff, he's still managing to make really great movies while he's doing all that. And I just I like the guy from everything that I've read about him. Nothing has made me not like Orson Welles. No, he seems totally awesome. Um, I remember when I was first getting into, like, really diving into movies, um, you know, Whole Hog or whatever, you loaned me a couple of books. Uh, James Nairmore's book on, on Wells, uh, This is Wells, um, and then the Bogdanovich, wait, is the Bogdanovich one This is Orson Welles? Uh, the Bogdanovich uh, interviews with Welles is, uh, is This is Orson Welles. The, the right. James Nairmore book is The Magic World of Orson Welles. That's right. Anyway, um, they just, you know, illuminated and, and deepened and enriched this portrait of this guy and, and his awesomeness. And uh, I agree with you. I mean, and, you know, I have... Like I said earlier in the show, I haven't seen all of his films. I'm still playing catch up with some of them. You know, I'm teasing it out. Um, but when I see one, I just kind of go down that rabbit hole and kind of want to just watch all of his stuff again and and revisit them um, because there's so much to chew on and there's and and they're so rich um, visually and intellectually and. Um, yeah, he's he's totally awesome. There's a reason that Jack White, you know. Models his entire life off of Orson Welles. <laughs> I wish I could model my wife, my life after my wife after Orson Welles. Oh, God, you're <laughs> going to cut that little Freudian slip out there. <laughs> I wish I could model my life after after Orson Welles. I, I wish oh, he's 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 a hero of mine, even though he's totally absurd. Yeah, I but you know, absurd. that's what's so great about him is that he is totally absurd. Like he he doesn't take himself that seriously, you know. Um, yeah, he doesn't take himself as seriously as his as his fans take him or his detractors take him, and that's kind of the the secret. I right, think. he was he's willing to get silly, and and um, I mean, I think anybody that's seen F for Fake knows that he's willing to get a little silly, or or Chimes at Midnight, which or, is or Transformers the movie. Yeah, well, he wasn't too happy with that, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he's he's just he's super. Great. So, what's your favorite Orson Welles film? Uh, I I go back and forth between Touch of Evil and and Citizen Kane. Yeah, uh, but I, I I like so many of them so much. Uh, the more more interesting, I think, is is what's your favorite uh, uh, non Kane non Touch of Evil Orson Welles movie. Would you would you go with Chimes at Midnight? I would go F for Fake or Chimes at Midnight. Um, I I would like to see Chimes at Midnight again. I've only seen it once. We, uh, we saw it together actually at the Film Forum here in Seattle. They ran it on sixteen millimeter, um, 
many, 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 many years ago. Um, and I just I, loved I didn't it. See that. You didn't go there? No, I, did, I, I missed that. You weren't there for that? No. That wasn't me. That was your, your really? other podcast co-host. Huh. Gon Shulman, that's his name. <laughs> I, th- I, think I, I think I had to work when it was playing. I think I told you to go, though. Oh. Well, I was there with somebody. I don't know who I was there with. Um, anyway, it's totally awesome, and I loved it. I ate, ate it up. Um, but I haven't seen it since. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of the, you know, the harder ones to, to see. And um, There's a Spanish DVD of it, I think, that's in, that's in decent condition that I have somewhere in storage. Well, that's good for you. Yeah, <laughs> all, of, um, all of my DVDs are in storage. It's really, it's really frustrating. I had to buy I, Magnets I, and Ambersons from Vudu in order to watch it this week because my my DVD is is in my storage area. Oh, I was really annoyed. I the, thought I had it here, the, but I did not. The pains you go through for this show. Yeah. Um, but I also, I uh, after Fake was was a real revelatory experience for me the first time I saw it and it's one that um, I get something out, something different out of each time I see and I've seen it a few times now we ran it for Metro Classics um, back in the day and that was totally awesome and uh, I think it's just such a great I think I think that movie was ahead of its time when it was made, and I still think it's ahead of its time. Like like mo- there are documentaries that are starting to do what that movie does, but they none of them do it as well as that movie, even though it came out forty years before it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 a great one. Those those would probably be my two uh, non Kane non Touch of Evil picks as well. Uh, I also I really like Mr. Arkadin. Me too. Which, which is, is one I just recently caught up with. That move that movie is just crazy. It's like it's it's Touch of Evil mixed with Citizen Kane with all of the uh the uh uh rules broken. All of the the uh the the rationality thrown out the window. It's yeah, it's well it's fantastic. got it, it's got bits of the third man too, which of course he didn't direct, but he was, you know, the pivotal uh character in that film. Um, yeah, no, Mr. Arkanen is uh, super, super fun. Have you seen the multiple cuts, or have you only seen the comprehensive cut? I, I have seen two different cuts of it. I've seen one of the ones that's on the, the Criterion set, and another one uh, I saw projected at the Brattle Theater in Boston, which was really cool. I don't, I don't remember which version of it that was, though. Mm. That, that was the first time I saw it. I think it was the Confidential Report version. But I don't, Sounds about right. I don't remember the differences between the, the various versions. Right. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's what's most. Do you have anything more to say about him, or shall we move on to our uh, essential, cinema essential nostalgia movie? Let's talk about our nostalgia movie. Okay. Were you, were you able to think of one in the last hour since we came up with this topic? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to stick with the first one that came to my mind. But why don't you tell us? your pick first of, of what your cinema essential film that kind of captures your childhood or, or something approximating it. Yeah. The, the idea is, is kind of like how, how Amberson's uh, uh, feels like it's, it's a look back at Wells's own, the world that he grew up in and, and platform very much as a, a look back at the world that, that Jaja and Cut looked back in. Uh, I want to pick a movie that, that reminded me of the world that I grew up in. And, and that movie is E.T., 
Steven Spielberg's film, and and I grew up, like I said, in, in the 1980s. And it's not so much like the you know the visiting alien because that didn't actually happen to me, but just the the way that the kids interact and the way that they you know spend their lives playing like role playing games with like junk food all over the place or riding their bicycles all over town and out into the woods and and just playing games that was the uh, my youth as I remember it and it's uh, it's a vanished youth now because kids aren't allowed to do those kinds of things anymore. Like they, you know, no, all the kids in, in ET ride bicycles and they don't wear helmets and they have no adult supervision at all. And they go all over town and that just doesn't happen. My kids will not, will never be able to do that because even if I (laughs) wanted them to, every other parent around would judge me as a horrible person for allowing my kid to, you know, ride three blocks away. Right. Yeah. So that that was the movie that that came to mind to me. That's a great pick. I, I feel like you you're speaking for an entire generation when you pick that that film. So I I hear you on that. Um, well, I'm nothing ter- if not generic. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such a good pick. I mean, it's you know, it's how can you put anything up against it, really? You know. Um, well, for me, I'm a little, as you said, younger than you. Um, and I mean, E.T., I, I would like to see E.T. again. It's been a long, long time and I've been meaning to see it again. And I, I will before the end of the year. Um, I can guarantee you that. But, um, the film I'm going to pick, I'm not going to talk too much about because we've already talked about it on the show, um, before, but, uh, the film that really <laughs> captures a lot of 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 my life, I realize, and I think I may have mentioned this when we talked about it then, but uh, is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And, um, you know, I I was born in the Midwest. I was actually born in Wisconsin, like uh, Orson Welles. And, um, but I moved to California when I was uh, five years old. So I, my memories of, of Wisconsin are, are very uh, hazy, and it's not really a sense of place with that. Um, and so the Californianists... Um, of Bill and Ted, um, you know, San Dimas is kind of similar to, to what life was like in uh, Foster City, it, it seemed like to me. Um, you know, the sunny the sunny days and, and going to the mall, killing time there. Um, and it's a little older than like you're talking about with E.T. when your kid's riding bikes. You know, this was me like maybe middle school-ish era, um, especially like when I first started to play music and was absolutely terrible. <laughs> and I think that Bill and Ted really capture that kind of gung-ho, we don't care if we don't know what we're doing, we're going to have fun doing it kind of thing. Um, I think they really capture that well. And, uh, you know, and they're morons, just like me. So I think that there's like <laughs> there's a sense of camaraderie there with, with uh, those two characters. So I really respond to that film. And the whole time travel thing, you know, I did I did some time traveling when I was a kid as well, so it all ties in. That that's a great pick. I love Bill and Ted. If you uh, want to hear us talk more about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you can go to our uh, our uh, uh, internet <laughs> page. You can go to our to our website, thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com, where you can you can download and listen to that episode if you haven't already, and if you have, you can go and listen to it again because why not? Uh, with that, let's uh, let's move on to Jajenka's second film, the 2000 feature Platform, and we're going to listen to 
something from that right now, which probably involves music. Okay, Zhazhenka is probably the, the most prominent of what's known as the sixth generation of Chinese filmmakers. And the, uh, the fifth is probably better known. That's, that's directors like uh, Chen Kaige or Zhang Yimou, made films like Farewell, My Concubine, or House of Flying Daggers, or Raise the Red Lantern. And they were the, the fifth generation was the first one to graduate from the Beijing Film Academy, which was the main film school in China after the Cultural Revolution. And uh, the sixth generation grew up in a more liberal environment where they were actually allowed to make movies that were about things other than how awesome Mao was. And what the sixth generation does is in a lot of ways a reaction to the fifth generation who made very, very opulent kind of period epics. If you've seen any Zhang Yimou movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So the sixth generation films are much grittier. They're much more like in line with Italian neorealism. There's very long takes. There's non-professional actors. They deal with, uh, you know, socially provocative themes. And as a result, they tend to get banned by the Chinese government who is, doesn't generally take kindly to, to criticism. And Jajenka is, is one of those filmmakers who has made, he's gone back and forth between documentary and fiction film, and he's kind of, his kind of uh, overarching theme throughout his career thus far has been the impacts of modernization on China and Chinese culture, especially rural and poor China, over the last 30 years or so since the, the capitalist reforms at Deng Xiaoping. So that's all kind of background stuff. And, and what we have in, in platform is, a, a, is his second film after his, his debut feature, which was very highly praised uh, throughout the international festival circuit, but you know, of course not at all seen in, in China itself. Uh, his second film is a much more expansive film. It's, it's, uh, it's an epic covering about 10 years in the life of four young people who are part of a, a traveling uh, cultural performance group. And as they start in the late 1970s, they're still kind of in the cultural revolution repertory. There's only certain themes and plays that they can perform. 
And as the, the 1980s go on, things become more liberal, and eventually the troupe privatizes and becomes, was it the all-star all rock and break dance electronic band? Yes, which is, uh, I'm totally stealing for uh, my next project. Uh, and at, at the same time, paralleling these kind of, uh, uh, this kind of downward trend in the, in the fortunes of the troupe are the, the kind of romantic disappointments of the four main characters. There's, there's two guys and two girls. All of this unfolds over, over two and a half hours of very kind of, of long takes, of very kind of slow uh, narrational style. It's, it's very oblique, and it can be very uh, uh, difficult to get into if you're not tuned into Jajanka's wavelength. Uh, this was the second film I saw from him. I, saw it, I first saw it uh, maybe four or five years ago, and it, I did not get it at all. I was like, I was completely lost. I had no idea which character was which, and I was totally confused. This time, rewatching it, after having seen the rest of his films and having, you know, more of a background in, in Chinese film, I, I loved it. This, I was totally on board with it. I stayed awake the entire two and a half hours. <laughs> Didn't have to get up from the couch once. It, I, it was fantastic. I'm hoping that you liked it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I liked it. Um, I, it's, I, I, I find it a little funny that um, you had trouble with it the first time because um, I, I was, uh, you know, I was on board with it um, the whole time. I, I, I could follow what was going on, and I, I, I was wrapped up in the story. Um, and it didn't seem too oblique to me. Um, you know, I like slow movies. I've said it before. Um, and I can, I, maybe I can just get into the rhythm of that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that you can't, obviously. Um, but well, I'm, uh, I'm much better at it now after, after several years. I actually think what the, the biggest problem I had was, I, I watched this before. I had like a, a big screen, high definition TV. So I watched uh, it on my little TV. And it's a, it's a, it's a scope movie. So it's a little tiny image, and there are these long shots, and I had a lot of trouble making out the various characters because right. the screen just wasn't big enough. And and this time the the screen was big enough. I I understood what was going on, and maybe well, I was, and maybe I was just in like a spacey mood and wasn't able to pay attention the first time. I don't. I don't. Quit really making know. excuses. Uh, no, yeah. it. Uh, I mean, you know, he doesn't. I mean, I there's there's like no close-ups in this movie at all uh for the most part so um i know what you're saying i i could, I could see that being an issue um and so yeah there's a lot i like about this movie i don't love it um maybe when i revisit it five years down the line i'll have a different opinion um you know i there's nothing i dislike about the film um but it didn't there wasn't anything that kind of pushed beyond um just a yeah that was perfectly solid kind of thing for me um i really i think he captures um a lot of the issues of being um you know growing up and and like you said these relationships and how people kind of drift off you know these people that you were so close to and tight-knit with um and how without you really knowing it suddenly you're kind of on different paths and uh you know, it's a universal theme. It, it has nothing, you know, it, it's not specific to 
China in the 1980s. Like I, I saw a lot of myself and my friends in in these characters, um, and and the way that our lives have have played out. And I thought he really tapped into that um, really well, um, very honestly and and um, beautifully done. And uh, I think the filmmaking is really solid. Um, but I didn't I didn't have an emotional reaction. Not that I needed one, but like um, I. Yeah, there was nothing that kind of vaulted this over over the top for me. Um, but it is it's very good. I, I highly recommend. It. I think people should check it out. Um, I think uh, apparently the the original cut of the film was was longer. It was forty minutes longer. It was one hundred and ninety minutes. Whereas the the one that's that was actually released is uh, is uh, one hundred and fifty five minutes. It's, it's not quite two and a half hours, and. Uh, I was reading, there's a, a profile of, of Jojenka on Senses of Cinema that's written by Kevin Beely, who's the, the terrific uh, uh, film critic, and he runs Degenerate Films, which actually uh, releases a lot of independent Chinese cinema. Uh, and he was kind of describing some of, some of the, the stuff that was cut out of it, and I think there, there's more emphasis on the performance of, of the troupe in the longer cut especially a, a kind of climactic performance where everyone gathers and you see like the, 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 the rock and roll band and the go-go dancers in the, the rock and break dance group. That's, that kind of brings home the idea that, that these characters are, are somewhat miserable in their own lives and they're a little lost in modernity, but the, the music is what kind of keeps them going and gives them a release and gives them like a, this emotional outlet. So it, it, it plays up the importance of their performing in, in how they, you know, make their lives worth living. And I don't know that that really comes across in the, in the, uh, the cut that exists right now. It doesn't, I mean, it really doesn't show a lot of their performance, uh, is, um, you know, you get fleeting, you know, snippets, and and I actually kind of like that. I kind of like the fact that it 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 didn't. Um, it, it's more about life off stage in this cut, at least, um, and and the the journey, you know, traveling to these small towns and trying to find a place to put on their show and. Um, yeah, I, I almost feel like in this version, there's there's as much, if not more, evident um, emphasis on the audience their performances than on the actual performers performing themselves when when they when they first start they're in these packed halls of of workers who are you get kind of get the feeling that they're like forced to be there either because there's absolutely nothing else to do in these small towns or because the the party expects them to show up for these propaganda events and as the film goes along the the audiences get smaller and smaller and smaller until finally uh, it's just like the two go-go dancers dancing on a, the flatbed of a truck on the side of a highway with nobody watching. And they're kicking butt. They're yeah. doing a solid, solid job of that song right there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I really, and I like the, I like seeing, you know, even though we only see little bits of it, I love seeing the progression of, of um, 
them artistically. You know, like you said, they're 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 forced to do these you know state mandated kind of plays and stuff. Um, but one of my favorite shots or sections is when they're all like starting to play instruments and they're they're like jamming out in this little room, um, and it's filmed from outside. And they are rock. I mean, they they came with a groove, and and it and and the camera like kind of pans out from that and kind of does this swoop kind of thing. Um, but uh, it gets infectious, you know. When and and they do a performance, which is a famous, you know, it's it's on the uh, DVD and poster cover, you know, where where they they start to turn into like a new wavy kind of band, where it's kind of I got this um, synthy kind of sound to it and stuff, and. Uh, they're they're good i gotta tell you i i, I enjoyed the performances <laughs> um so but what i like what i really responded to here um wasn't those perform you know was these um relationships and and in particular the way that um it's the and he, hey matt zoller sites here here's me bringing it all back right here um but the way that the camera which is um, like you said, it's very long takes. It doesn't. There's not a lot of um, editing um, going on within scenes, uh, but it's really it's it's handled beautifully. The way that they're they're one of the the pairings, the male female pairings. Um, they're they're kind of circling each other, trying to figure out the male the the guys trying to figure out if they really are boyfriend girlfriend and and you know the woman is unsure she and she won't admit one way or the other to him and it's filmed where they meet kind of secretly um on this kind of this path and there's this kind of wall um that they go behind and what's so great about it is it's one shot and it it's cut down the middle by this wall so the wall is on the left side of the screen and then you only see one of them at a time as the other one kind of drifts behind the wall as they're having this discussion about their relationship or lack thereof um and it and it just with without you know explicitly doing anything it shows you that they're separate they're you know there's a distance between them um that's not going to be you know it's not they're just not going to overcome it and and it's reinforced throughout the film there are a lot of of, of scenes where there people will be having a conversation but one person will be um in a doorway and the other person will be talking to them but they're cut off by a, a window pane and um it's little things like that that make the images strong enough to where you don't need you know to go into a close up or or to to cut or edit it um and yeah, I, th- I think I think that's that's important to note. Like he's not he's not shooting in long shot just to be perverse to make it um, harder for the audience to identify with the characters. Like there there is an actual purpose to the form that he's chosen, and and he he's he shoots in long shot because it 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 shows the characters in the relation to their environment and they're constantly being cut off from other people by their environment or they're being dwarfed by it there's there's not just that one shot of of the the couple um played by uh, uh Wang Hongwei and and Zhao Tao who's in uh almost every uh Zhao Jenka film uh there's not just that one where they're on the wall and and uh dancing 
it's kind of dancing back and forth. Uh, every other conversation they have is in the shadow of these kind of ancient walls where there's like this whole history of, of the town of uh, Fenyang, which is Zhenkov's hometown, uh, just looming over them. Or they'll be shot in this, this vast open space, uh, which is, it's not a, a structure because it's like a, a big blank field, but it's still dwarfing them and making them small in relation to their environment. And that's kind of, uh, it's, it's, uh, it relates to the, the process of, of modernization, how, how these people's lives are, are just kind of tiny cogs in this machine that that's rapidly transforming and they, you know, are, are struggling to keep up with it. But at, at the same time, it just, it, it kind of captures a melancholy feeling that you get when you're young and you're just realizing that you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it's part of becoming an adult is realizing that you're not the center of the universe. And, and these, these characters more than, than most teenagers and, and kids in their early twenties are, are realizing that because there are massive forces of history at work reshaping everything about their environment and there's nothing they can do about it. Well, I think it is telling that, you know, I, they, if correct me if I'm wrong, but they start out in their early twenties. They're not, teenagers in the beginning or maybe they are I don't know. it's, the, the, it's a little it, unclear on the passage of time like there's there's not like you know this takes place in 1979 and then this thing takes place in 1980 it's it's kind of fluid and and jaw actually kind of plays with that i think in in one part he has uh one of the guys looking at a picture of a girl in a in a window and then you you pan away from that and you see that there's this massive ditch in the street that then there's a guy like working on it and that takes place like about halfway through the film. So you, if you think like the film covers 10 years and that's probably like five years into the film. But then at the very end, uh, another character looks at that same window and it's the same display in the window and they pan down and it's the same ditch that's still there. So I don't, I, it's right. The, the timeline is unclear. Is, is, is that unchanged? Um, was the earlier scene a flash forward? Is this a flashback? Or is it just kind of this uh, kind of surreal allegory for the fact that, you know, these images of uh, like a, a, a remembered picture of what a girl you knew looked like then uh, stays the same while the process of remaking the city of Fenyang goes on? Well, what I think is really great about the because it is very subtle the way that the time shifts, but and another means of capturing this youthfulness is um, in the first half of the film in particular, there's this slavish devotion to um, fashion. Mm. And um, and it's really interesting because there's this scene where um, the mother of one of them is teasing him about his bell bottoms, you know, and, and he's like, Oh, it's, it's the style. It's what's cool. You know? And, and they all go into town and everybody's like, Whoa, check out your pants, you know? <laughs> um, and he shows off his pants. Um, but then without mentioning it, um, the bell bottoms never, they don't come back and suddenly everybody's got pegged pants. And so that, and that's really 
the only way you can tell that another like a year has passed or something is oh they're not wearing bell bottoms anymore they're wearing you know they're wearing these acid wash jeans or whatever um and one character she gets you know a perm you know and it's this big deal you know everybody's like teasing her about it or whatever she's on the cutting edge or whatever um and and for me, that's you know, there's a there's a Brian Eno lyric uh, that I want un- engraved on my tombstone. It's uh, the passage of my life is measured out in shirts, and I think that the the film really captures that. Where it's it's a subtle shift, and it doesn't draw attention to itself as it's going. But as a viewer, you're like, oh, e- even though it's it's two scenes that are butting up right next to each other, um, just based on pants. <laughs> you can tell that time has passed or whatever. Uh, I thought that was really uh, well done uh, stuff. Uh, to change the subject entirely and go back to something I, w- I was talking about uh, before, about the idea that uh, that music was like these characters' release and it was uh, this kind of idealized thing that, that may have been more emphasized in the longer cut of the film. Uh, I want to talk about my, my favorite scene in the film, which is uh, it comes about two-thirds of the way through it, I think. And the uh, the character played by by Zhao Tao has left the performance troupe, and she's taken a job. She's like a tax collector, and she's working in an office. And we see her in her office alone one night, and she's listening to the radio. And uh, a song comes on the radio, and almost as if she can't help it, she just she starts dancing, and she gets up from her desk, and she goes into this elaborate dance. And it's just it's so pretty. <laughs> It's so, yeah, that scene is fantastic. It's 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 really great, and and uh, I really like the music in this. Like I went out and bought a, a three disc uh, Teresa Tang collection because I was I I liked the song of of hers that they use in this film so much. Yeah, no, it's great, and you, um, that scene. It, I'm glad you brought that up. Is um, it really captures the the kind of um, free spiritedness that music can you know out of the blue you know you can be in the strangest places and and just like suddenly you know like a riff comes on and you start rocking out or something like that and it just uh, it takes over um yeah, and, and it's great i i think that 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 kind of thing is uh it tends to get under discussed in in jaja kung's films but i i think what makes him really interesting as a uh as a, a a so-called realist, you know, political filmmaker, is that he has these these really odd kind of flights of fancy that he'll he'll insert into his films. Uh, is this this is this the first Jaw film that you've seen? Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's uh, one he made a few years after this called called The World. Which, I really want to see the world. Yeah, it's it's set in in a very surreal setting. It's in a theme park in Beijing that has like miniature versions of all these like landmarks from throughout the world. Uh, but also in that are are kind of interstitial segments that are that are animated of the various characters like flying through the air. Um, and it, it's very odd from this, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect like a, you know, a Vittorio De Sica to, to suddenly have like an animated segment in the middle of the bicycle thief or something. Uh, but, but Jaw will do that. Or in, uh, in Still Life, uh, which takes place in this, in this town that's being destroyed to make way for the, the flooding that's going to be caused by the construction of the, uh, the Three Gorges Dam. This this massive public works project, and it's an entire town needs to be relocated, and and in the middle of this, one of the buildings 
just becomes a spaceship and takes off as somebody's looking at it. And there's there's no explanation for it. It's just it's just weird. And and that's what what really gets me about Jaws because he's he's very serious and he has a very important political point to make, but it doesn't make him uh dry or or you know bland or boring. Like he's he's willing to be fun. And there's not a lot of fun often in, in movies like this. Right. Well, I think those two that you mentioned are very, I mean, I haven't seen those movies, but like those feel, those sound very different from the scene of her dancing, which I think really, um, I don't feel like it's out of place at all in this. I feel like yeah, it's, there, there's less of that element in, in platform than in the other films. I think like I I feel like that moment is a really honest and important moment for that character to show that she um you know while she's given up her you know idealized you know artistic life or whatever she still has the passion within her or whatever um yeah but like mo- it's it's a musical sequence though like like a, an actual character probably isn't going to break into like a big dance routine like she might sit at her desk and maybe sing along and like bob her head to the song but she's probably not going to get up and dance to it like it's it's, it's like something you would see in in a hollywood musical it's a musical uh, i disagree I I could see myself at a cubicle, the Melvins come on, and I like kick the chair out and start <laughs> rocking out. So I mean, you know, maybe I just live in a fantasy world, but um, that is very likely. <laughs> um, well, and with another interesting, great scene is um, there's a song about Genghis Khan that we hear when one of the characters goes off. Um, he goes on vacation and and he comes back and he's of course the talk of the town because he got to go to this exotic place and he got a cool haircut while he was there and this goes he, back he to went, the whole he fashion. went he went to Guangzhou, which is uh, just across the water from Hong Kong, so it's like the most cosmopolitan place in the late seventies because it's so close to Hong Kong. Cool. Uh, so he does that. <laughs> Um, and, uh, anyway, so the song comes back. He's like, oh, this is like the hip thing. This is what everybody's into, um, over there or whatever. Um, but, but later that song comes back, um, and it's a really, it's like a catchy little pop song, you know, gang, 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 just kind of, you know, it's really, really cheesy. But, um, what's interesting is, is later on in the film, that character has, um, a, a moment of like drunken anguish and he's, and he's, singing that song acapella just like completely blitzed and kind of just like causing senseless destruction um and singing this song and turning it into like a more of like a plaintive wail um that once again this is just me reiterating everything i think it really captures being in your 20s and 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 kind of um getting frustrated and 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 finding solace um in stupid pop songs <laughs> um and and having them kind of um be kind of like a um i don't know a crystallization or, or something that you can latch on to and something that like kind of explains the world to you and um and i think it's awesome <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I, th- I think this is as universal a story of of, of youth, whether it's like teenagers or, or kids in their early twenties, as 
as like a Dazed and Confused or an American. I movie. thought of Dazed and Confused a lot while I was watching this. Actually, I really did. Uh, the 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 only difference is that these kids grew up in the Cultural Revolution, <laughs> and they're they're suddenly like within a decade becoming you know a, a an advanced industrial power, which is enough to drive anyone completely insane. You're right. And and somehow these these kids survived and and. They may not be particularly happy at the end. Like the the final shot we see of of Wong Hung Lei is really kind of depressing. <laughs> he's like uh, he's given up on his music dreams and he's become a dad. And we see him just asleep on the couch <laughs> with a cigarette in his hand. With a cigarette in his hand, just wearing a suit. And uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of sad. But you know, what are you gonna do? <laughs> That's life. <laughs> Uh, if if you if you liked uh, Wong Hong Wei in this film, I, I really recommend uh, watching Jaws' first movie, which I actually just watched this week uh, to get ready for this. Uh, it's called Zhao Wu, uh, or Pickpocket, and uh, Wong plays the the pickpocket character, and he's really fantastic. And that is a, a really great movie. Um, but really, I, I think I've seen all of of Jaws' feature films, and they're all really great. So. I don't know. I don't know which ones I would recommend to you in addition to platform, but you know, just see them all. A, a Touch of Sin came out last year. That movie is really interesting as well. So, yeah, I I, I definitely want to um, see more. I, I like I said, I I enjoyed this quite a bit. Yay! <laughs> uh, with that, we're gonna uh, listen to some more credence. Uh, I don't think there's any there's a better song than a traveling band. Okay. I mean, I mean, there are better songs than Traveling Man, but for this. Well, that's pretty much it for this show. Uh, in two weeks, we'll be back uh, with a discussion of one of your favorite films that you've talked about, I don't know, on like six of the shows already. <laughs> but we're going to have an in-depth discussion about it. Uh, La Ultima Pelicula, which will be opening in Seattle in just a couple of weeks. And we're tying that in with W.C. Fields' Never Give a Sucker an Even Break. Um, and if you're in San Francisco uh, in the coming month, 
the Castor Theater, which I've talked about time and again, um, they're they're going to do a bunch of really cool double features. Um, two of which um, are actually tie tying in with uh, previous episodes of the George Sanders Show. Um, they're doing on the April nineteenth, Saturday. They're doing a double feature of The Getaway with Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, which we talked about way, way back in the, in the day on the show, um, which sounds like a really cool time. And then uh, a little while later, um, on the 27th, Sunday the 27th, they're doing The Narrow Margin, which I've never seen, and doing that with Emperor of the North, which we talked about just a couple of weeks ago. So uh, if you're in San Francisco, queue up the podcast, go check out those films. Um, it'll be totally awesome. Uh, the Narrow Margin is really good. It's another good uh, train film. I think I actually mentioned it on that show as uh, one of my essential train movies. Cool. Yeah, you should you should go and re-listen to that episode. So. <laughs> uh, if you're in the uh, in Brooklyn, you should go to the BAM Cinematheque. Uh, it's ongoing right now, so you better hurry to to catch the rest of the films. There's a, a Joseph von Sternberg, Marlena Dietrich series, and I think they're playing all the films they did together. Uh, you've already missed my two favorites, uh, Morocco and Shanghai Express, but there are some cool ones coming up this week. On uh, the 7th and 8th is The Devil is a Woman, which is, uh, is I think that's their last film together, and it's probably the most kind of sadistic and elaborate. Uh, on the 9th, they're playing Blonde Venus, which is, which, is a, which is an okay movie. It's got an early Cary Grant performance. Uh, but the one you really have to see if you haven't seen it before, and I bet it's, it's amazing in the theater, is on Thursday, April 10th, The Scarlet Empress, which is one of the craziest fucking movies I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of crazy, um, this, ties, this actually ties in. In between those two Castro shows, uh, the, on Wednesday the 23rd, they're doing a double feature of Dietrich in Rancho Notorious. Um, and tying that in with Nicholas Ray's Johnny Guitar, which is also totally crazy. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great double feature there. So. Isn't that good? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish I was going to... I'm actually going to be in San Francisco um, two weeks after that. And so I, this always happens as I start to look around to see what's playing what, you know, anytime I go out of town. And all, they always do like really great stuff right before I show up. And then like the week I'm there, it's like, you know, I don't know. Mamma Mia sing along or something like that. And I'm like, God, geez, Louise. Anyway, uh, you can find out more about us uh, on our website, thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. We're on Twitter at geosandershow, and we accept email uh, at Show at gmail.com. I think that's it for this week, huh, Sean? Yep, that's it. Okay, well, you know, next time we, we hear from you, you'll be living in a mansion in northern Tacoma. Yeah, probably not. Uh, <laughs> say hi to that pigeon for me yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna take over the last song here we're not gonna listen to george i just i, I love the the Teresa tang so much we're gonna listen to to wine and coffee whether you like it or not i'm cool with it all right you better be
知道爱情像流水，管他去爱谁。我要美酒加咖啡，一杯再一杯。咖啡。